To ship, of course. Welcome to the uh, inaugural episode, episode one of The Ship Show, the podcast covering build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, SoberBuildEng on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And tonight, my awesome co-hosts are... Uh, E.J. Saramella. Uh, Twitter handle is, again, E. Saramella, Senior Release Engineer. Uh, I don't even know if that title is valid anymore, but... Um, as Yusuf, um, at Build Scientist on Twitter, BuildScientist.com. I'm uh, also a Build Release Engineer. Cool. And so uh, we thought we'd kick off our, our first episode tonight talking a little bit about why we're here. This actually started with a rant on Twitter. I can't even remember what you and I were ranting about, EJ. I just remember that, that there was some back and forth that we were talking about, and you were like, this so needs to be a podcast. And then it just kind of... Uh, and I know, Yusuf, you you uh, chimed in a few times, too, and then it just sort of snowballed. Yeah. So uh, uh, one of the things is, is I, I think we all, especially you know a bunch of people on Twitter, that we talk about the same issues a lot of the times, uh, and we figure it'd be good to actually start talking about that in a, in a way that people can sort of interact in sort of a, a, a forum and and have kind of more discussions about this stuff, which is important to all of us, I think, but but sometimes it gets lost in the, the software development shuffle. So one thing uh, we wanted to take time to do every sh- uh, every show is to look at some of the events and news going on in the in the tech world, but sort of from our, our own unique release engineering and uh, configuration management perspective. So on that note, we start tonight with uh, something that was I know a lot of our friends were dealing with over this weekend the uh, the leap second problem. Did you guys hear about this problem? Oh. Yeah, seems yeah. seems to have locked up a whole bunch of Jenkins slaves. Is that's that's essentially how I found out about it. Yeah, yeah. I I heard uh, on Twitter a bunch of people talking about JVM issues, but also MySQL. Most of the issues that I uh, that I heard about were just anybody running any Java-based uh, uh, anything you know running on the JVM uh, is basically locking up. So, um. so, so this is kind of interesting to me because it's like how you know if you hadn't ever run into this problem, I've never heard of this. Before. Like I've never heard of a leap second. Causing a problem like this, I know, uh, and we'll we'll link to it in the show notes. There's a a patch that fixed it. It looks like it was a problem with hosts that were running NTP and other processes, and it caused like a kernel issue of some sort. You know, it's interesting. Like, have you guys ever heard of any sort of time-based stuff causing processes to go crazy town? I haven't. And I remember everyone digging the trenches for the Y2K bug that never happened. So. It's sort of weird that it's 12 years later and then we get sucker punched by something like this. This is the this is the only time I've ever heard of this thing. Like, is this a regular occurrence? You know, I don't know. I did read something very interesting. Uh, I read a blog post uh, from a guy that I follow who was talking about how Google handles this, and they didn't seemingly have any problems. They actually hacked their NTP server to the the company NTP servers that they use in their data centers. They hacked the code such that uh, it would add milliseconds. It would skew the leap second, in, but as part of the protocol, it didn't actually. Ha- they didn't actually have their servers add the leap second. They just skewed the NTP data so that when it, by the time it was the leap second, it was actually exactly right on with the leap second, which I thought was kind of an interesting hack. Well, that means that you know they were aware of it, and, and somebody was. You know, might have been keeping track of uh, kernel updates or updates to NTP, but um, well, so that, that brings up a really interesting point, especially from like a configuration center management. Did they know, or were they just trying to reduce complexity? 
by by just kind of building that change in at a different level. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay. So. Cool. Well, uh, so that was I, something I know that a bunch of my friends. I actually was I was tweeting about the fact that uh, the inter uh, International Earth Rotation Service, which are the people that do this, they need to make sure they do the next leap second on a weekday, uh, at least when it's not in the middle of the weekend. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, EJ, you brought up something uh, from that Netflix shipped uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so it's this product called Archaeus. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, I thought it was sort of neat because, God, almost like five or six years ago, a bunch of us sat around talking about how much it sucks to push configuration and then have to uh, restart the servers to get them to pull them in and read the property files. And we started talking, we're like, it'd be so much better if we were running a web service and you could change it on the fly and have your apps um, dynamically pull from this web service the configuration that they needed. Um, and I think there are some places in that, there's some caveats to that statement, um, but it looks like Netflix worked around it. And I think it's pretty slick, especially with the way they're doing it and with the auto-scaling and the, the polling. And it just, it's pretty well, it's pretty well uh, formed. You know, this sounds like, I mean, this is all Java-based, right? Is all their stuff Java? I would assume. I haven't actually looked at how it's deployed. I just know that, you know, it's it's an app. Well, you know, it's, it's a framework. It's it's not really an application. It's a framework you gotta you gotta use or a library you gotta use in your uh, in your Java applications. So it is a Java thing. You know, it's interesting to me. We'll talk more about this actually later in the show. But when I read this, it sounded a lot like a term I'd never heard before called CMDBs, where the concept was basically that you would write your application like that and it would get all of its configuration from different configuration management databases. Um, but it sounds like they kind of baked this more in, and it, it seems from what I read a little more fault-tolerant of things like, you know, you're not pointing all of your apps at one database, right? Yeah. Well, it's uh, it, it's certainly an interesting way to, to uh, store configuration, change it on the fly. Well, so the other thing we wanted to talk about a little bit was uh, there was a discussion going on... Uh, over on Stack Exchange, uh, and we'll link to it in the show notes, that was discussing keeping old source code and whether or not you should do that. That was the question, should I do that? Uh, I thought the discussion was pretty interesting. What do you guys think? I think it's a convenient way, um, especially if, I don't know if you guys have played with Chef or any sort of, you know, a Maven plugin or something where you found yourself splitting hairs at 3 a.m., um, it's pretty nice to have that in your back pocket. And historically, I've done that. But again, like I'm talking about deployment automation. I'm not talking about code for the actual application, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So for me, it's it's very nice to dip into. But again, I, to be honest, tr- truthfully, I, I've never even opened those USB drives and done anything, even to revisit what I've done with Chef recipes. It's just sometimes for me, it's easier just to rewrite them. Anyway. <laughs> You know, it's interesting in that discussion. Did you see the discussion, Yusuf? Did you read some of the answers? I, I just read the uh, the actual question, but I didn't actually have a chance to dig through the, um, uh, the discussion. So, so it's interesting to me because, uh, you know, there's certainly a, like a moral versus legal argument that's going on. You, you see a subset of the people talking about everybody does it, so it's fine. Um, I, I think uh, this whole issue is more interesting with uh, distributed version control systems because... You know, now not only does everyone have head 
revisions sitting on their laptops. They have the entire history of the company sitting on their laptops. And should they leave and keep that, like, they have everything, which I think is is an interesting sort of other aspect to this keeping old source code. Well, isn't that assuming that they're not supplied company laptops? I mean, generally, most most companies, uh, unless you're working for some sort of a startup, um, you're, you're supplied a, a company... Uh, Purchase. Sure, but I mean, but I mean, even even if you take that directory and zip it all up, and then take the copy of that, right. uh, the point is, it's just easier to get. Certainly, keeping old versions of source code around, you know, people have done that, whatever. But if you grabbed a, a copy of the entire, you know, CVS tree, you would generally only get the head revision, right? You wouldn't take the time to go get every revision that ever existed. Now that's just part of distributed version control. Well, my did, my, my perspective on this is that you know any. Pretty much any you know code you write for a company is their intellectual property. Now, the strategy that I would take is if you're writing tools um, that you know isn't core to the company's business, try and talk to somebody in legal or your manager or whoever to get them to um, allow you to open source that stuff and, and throw it up on GitHub and call it a day. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. One of the answers, which I thought was one of the best answers in that discussion, was. Somebody was saying, go and tell your boss that you have a bunch of their source code at home and see what, what your boss does. And if your boss doesn't care, then it's not a problem. And if your boss does care, then it is a problem. And, and they were basically making the argument that it doesn't matter what your moral views on this are or the, even what the legal views are. If you're so confident about it, go tell your manager and see what happens. I thought that was a kind of interesting response because I, 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 I can guess what most would happen most of the time, but I don't know. Maybe it's different with with uh, newer startups or something. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Back in a minute to The Ship Show. decided to launch the podcast with a pretty poor discussion to all of our careers, um, and it's a question that EJ brought up, and he asked, why bother with release engineering? So, since you, you uh, posed this question, EJ, I mean, why, why, that seems like a very simple, obvious question, um, but there's probably more there, so... so. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll end this discussion a bit here. So, I know plenty of places now that uh, they're small startups, and I don't know if they're trying to run in some ultra lean mode, but release engineering is optional. Um, and what winds up happening, at least that I've seen, is um, some developer is doing this part time and <laughs> end up calling me, and we, did, we discuss some stuff and step them through some problems and different techniques and different options to solve things. Um, but in the end, the, the final uh, words are our CEO or CFO doesn't believe in release engineering. So why bother with it, right? And I have a couple of ideas of why, um, largely around developers' time and what they should be doing, right? I feel like a good release engineering and operations staff um, should help guide development. Uh, you don't want development throwing these square pegs over the wall to you and try and force you to fit them into round holes. Also, all the release engineering services such as SCM, 
um, CI, uh, even metrics like things like sonar. That's just a service that release engineering should be providing, and devs should not be worrying about it. Those are my thoughts. I'm not sure. What are you, what's your experience, guys, with release engineering, or at least what have you seen? You guys being treated like second class citizens, or well, for me, it, it kind of runs the gamut. I mean, I've been in situations where uh, you know the company that I'm working for knows that they need release engineering, but they kind of they're kind of annoyed by it. And you know, release engineering is kind of treated uh, the same way that the quality assurance is. Uh, and then I've been in some other companies that actually understand the value of release engineering. So I, I really think it depends on. Um, not just the size of the company, but uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, the people that are that are uh, managing it and that are running it, but also the type of products that you're dealing with. Um, you know, if you're working in a vertical market where uh, you're dealing with, you know, for example, people's money, as opposed to I don't know, um, some uh, something that's not doesn't have a monetary uh, uh, you know thing associated with it, then release practices might not be uh, as strict or uh, as um, important in the shop that you know doesn't deal with people's money. I still think in the end, you still have to release software, whether it's a boxed product or to a website or whatever. Sure. Um, and the developers are best at being developers, right? And maybe you can turn to them for some part of, some small bit of toolsmithing, but a good release engineer should be able to make that all those problems just sort of disappear. Hey, here's, an, here's another perspective. Here's another perspective on this. So I just recently accepted a position, and I'm essentially the first engineer on the ground. And I'm the release engineer for this this group, and there's literally no lines of code written for this particular product. And what's awesome about this is usually by the time I'm hired, people hire me because there's some sort of you know rat's nest or something to untangle. And I spend all my time getting bogged down with all these you know, different rabbit holes. And you have to you literally have to figure out how far the rabbit hole goes down before you can solve any problems. And this way, like I can completely set up all the tools I want the way I want them and get them completely stabilized. So by the time the engineer is ready to submit his first push to our centralized Mercurial repo, it's all rock solid and as performing as fast as possible. Um, so there's no loaded gun to the back of my head right now. And I think that's awesome. I think that's totally the right approach to get guys in first and stabilize this type of environment. And also, like, now I know the... It's essentially like I have the, the puzzle drawn out in my head, right? And so I know when a developer is done, the the uh, form of the, the artifact that he'll be producing... Um, how to move that through the environment instead of in the past it's been like, yeah, well, we've got these zip files that we hand cobble together and put them out here and then some Maven dependency molests them in this way and it's just a mess usually. Well, so, so. so EJ, what's interesting to me about that is this experience that you're talking about seems to be the outlier, not not what usually happens. I mean, and, and I think, you know, the argument well, I agree, is... 100%. Yeah, the argument from a finance perspective is I don't even have QA. Why would I hire a release guy? Why, you know, and, and so the developers, you know, by that, I mean, my experience has been in two situations. I, I, I've done startup work and, you know, I have some clients that are startups and, you know, their perspective is, well, we need, we need someone to write a batch file to do a build. And every developer at that startup will likely say, well, I can write that. That's not hard. And, 
I mean, for some value of that, they're right. You know, it's not hard to write a, a make file that's going to do stuff, uh, you know. Uh, and so I think if you're in that position where you have someone who's like, you know what, as part of the core team, we're going to have a QA person and a build person along in the first month with all the developers. But I think being able to be in a situation where you're like, yeah, I have all the CIA stuff set up. I have all the Maven stuff set up so that the first check-in, it all works. Like, I've never, even with small, tiny startups, I, 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 I did some consulting for a two- or three-person startup, and that, you know, they were doing all of their release engineering for themselves. So, and and so, they never got QA. They never got QA, right? So, so this, this, is the big, this is the big disconnect here, too, is that the company that I work for is a huge company. Yeah. And what they're doing here is they've opened an office, and they want this particular office to be treated just like a startup, and they're doing everything from ground zero. And they are also very painfully aware of really crappy Maven implementations, um, bad development processes. They also know what it's like to have devs throw over a live grenade and be like, here, deploy this crap, and they haven't really thought through it. They're aware of all this stuff. So well, when, 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 my, when my boss heard that they were going to open the shop, he cleared the lane and said, we need to get our guys on the ground there first and make sure that developers can just have release engineering as a service, and everything just sort of glides into production. Um, so and so that's, that's why I'm there. That's actually very interesting, right? Because basically what you're saying is, and this is to Yusuf's point earlier about, you know, if it's financial services or whatever, basically you have people that are higher enough in the organization that have a budget for it that have experienced all that in a very visceral way, and they want to do it differently. I, I think. I think more importantly is that if you have bad release engineering or you have a bad development and release process, that's painfully aware. It, 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 every, every layer of your com company will be painfully aware of this, right? Oh, no, nope, you know, you, you're wrong. You, you hear people say, like, I, I don't like, feel about that. Yeah, you're totally wrong. And, and the reason I say that is because I've been in enough environments where there has been problematic release engineering for years. And that was actually my point. It sounds like you're, you know, in an environment where somebody has gotten high enough that has felt that pain. But there's a lot of times there's managing going up and sideways to kind of make all of that pain not known, right? Or to hide it, right? Because I, I, I disagree 100%. Now, I've worked at plenty of places in the past where I have like a director or a VP come down and talk to development and say, why does it take, you know, uh, three weeks to make this simple text change to a website? Right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm saying. Like, it bubbles up and people are painfully aware. But and it's because of crappy release engineering and development processes. That's, that's content. I mean, for other, for other more complex um, deployments, you know, it's easy for engineering to come back and say, well... You know, okay, if it's content, let's throw a content management system in place. Or if it's if it's more, some, you know, something that's more, not a something more. That's not a trivial thing, though. I, I know, I'm not, I'm not trivializing it, but what I'm saying is, is that in, in, in my experience, what what usually ends up happening is that engineering is going to placate that director or product owner or whoever, and basically say, well, it's complicated. You know, it takes time to deploy this because. You know, QA has to do their, you know, testing and, uh, and so on and so. Well, sure, so, but if from the beginning, 
your release engineering staff was there to help guide people and say, look, we can do a deployment of static content or the whole app or this one library or this patch. You know what I'm saying? Like, if yeah. they were able to do that, then this wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. No. That's the right, point but, that I'm so, trying to make. No, but I, I so that's that's funny because I, I actually think that's, that's really the point. You know, it's it's the question that you started with was why bother with release engineering? And you were saying you, you, you disagreed with me 100%. And, and I'm just saying the way it was in certain environments. Uh, I have been in environments where, you know, you get that, that sort of why does it take two weeks to do a release? And there is somebody who's above the release engineering staff uh, and, and uh, may be technically savvy, may not be technically savvy to know what the details are. But they don't even let that question burble down to people that can answer it. They, they just say, well, it, 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 you know, they'll give a plausible answer and they'll say, well, it takes two weeks for these 16 reasons. And if you actually, you know, took the time to dissect, well, what is each reason? And is it really, is it a bad process problem? Is it a deliverable problem? You know, look at that kind of stuff. You could actually get it from two weeks to a day or whatever it is. But that's the point is that if the person asking the question is satisfied by that answer, then you still get a two-week release process, whether it's a string or a full whatever, and that never gets addressed. I think what it boils down to is dollars and cents, because really when you look at it, uh, you know, if a dev team is, is hurting because they're not getting their releases out on time, or they're, you know, they're having to do a bunch of rollbacks, but the, you know, the product owners are not, you know, getting whatever it is that they want, um, done on time, yeah, then they're going to go out and get a release engineer. But in the case of a startup, you know, their primary goal is to get the product out out there. So, you know, I can't really blame um, startups for not thinking about getting a release engineer unless you have a team of engineers that are mature enough to, to know, you know, from previous experiences that say, oh, you know what, maybe we should get a release engineer at some point, even though, you know, the release engineer isn't actually developing towards the actual end product because, once the startup, you know, uh, uh, grows and becomes successful, it's going to be really, it's going to be a really good idea for us to have a release engineer that's going to smooth out all these processes. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, Yusuf, to your point about that. You know, EJ, you you were saying the environment that you're in, which, by the way, sounds like a great environment in terms of they they felt those pain points and they're they're doing it right. I'm kind of actually jealous. Um, but what it sounds like to me, which I find very interesting, you know, you said. It was a, a team that was carved out of a big, big company that has money to like take all the lessons they've learned and do it right. And a lot of times, you know, what, what Yusuf was saying is like, there isn't the money in the budget. It's like, do I hire another engineer that's going to get me my product two months or four months quicker? Or do I want a release engineer where I'll, I won't see those savings for maybe six, six to 12 months because they're, getting everything set up and then also detangling everything and then then sure in a year 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 and a quarter i'll have this great awesome deploy process and it'll be great but the company might not exist because i needed to ship a product that i could show someone or something like that right i think um, that's that's being a little over dramatic about it hey, look at look at it this way right so forget about the startup aspect right there are plenty of companies out there that let their development guys or groups do the release engineering like they they automated the or not really even auto so 
let me put it this way. There's another company I worked at just in recent history um, where their release process was several engineers over the course of multiple days to crank out a release, right? And the code smell that comes off this is, ooh, it's scary to do a release, and we shouldn't do it that often. And I was there not even like four months, and uh, I had started pulling apart some monolithic code, and the parts that I couldn't separate out and give their own release process, I was able to automate within Jenkins in such such a way that it takes like an hour and a half or two hours, and it's a button click, and you fill out a form, and that's it, and you're done. And the, the big difference here is that before it was this guy on his desktop would do some stuff and then pass the buck to the next person, and then you know the, the resulting thing was never stable because it was moving around from developer to developer, and there were... The Jenkins way is sort of the clean room way, right? So forget about the startups. It's it's not just startups that are having this problem. It's big companies. Um, oh, no, no. You're, I, I think you're right. But I, I think in that case, in that environment, it's back to what I said earlier. It's, it's you have someone who has a budget to fix those problems. They have the money, you know, in a big company environment. And they ask, well, what's the problem? And they don't get an answer. So, they don't get, sorry, they get an answer that makes sense. You know, it answers their question, but it's not, you know, the answer that would make everyone's lives better. And, you know, this, so, so to kind of wrap this conversation up, this conversation started with, with why bother with release engineering. And it sounds, you know, we kind of talked about a bunch of different things, but it sounds to me like, you know, there's a couple of answers. Uh, and the main one really is because you don't want your developers doing this. They could be writing code for you and, and the cost, or the, the costs that, that the entire organization has to pay when you don't have it can that, often be hidden. That's, an, that's another oversimplification, right? So the developer's main job is to develop the product, right? And if you give him this other job, he tends to do it in a very piece, uh, uh, part-time fashion, right? Whatever it takes to get the job done. And you wind up with this fire brigade or some other mess, generally. That's well, the bigger problem. So like the, the developer isn't working 100% to build the product out. And on top of that, he's also making this other mess on the side that somebody's going to have to deal with at some point. Those are the two issues that I see. Well, and the, the other reason, or the other thing I was going to say, and of course, you know, uh, we'll hear, you'll hear this again and again from me, because I love to make this analogy. I really look at our roles as release engineers very similarly to air traffic control. And, and I won't get into the whole analogy right now, but one thing I will say is there's a reason those guys sit in a tower, and it's because they the perspective from up there is very different than a pilot sitting in a plane who doesn't see the planes to, to the sides of him and behind him and all of those kind of things. And so immaterial of whether it's a part-time job or, and the developers do care about it or don't care about it or whatever else they're working on, there's a different perspective involved about, you know, I'm not just servicing the engineering staff. I'm also servicing the QA staff and making sure that they get what they need. And that's just a different perspective. Well, you're also servicing the customers or the end right. the user right. of whatever it is that's uh, using the product. Well, I, we could go on talking about this probably for hours. And it's actually, you know, I'm glad you asked the question, EJ, because, you know, we, we actually touched on a bunch of different things uh, that I hope we get to, to kind of discuss in more detail. I know we've been talking about having guests on the show to help us kind of tear apart these things and really get to the meat of a lot of these issues. And also talk about uh, all of our experiences, hopefully uh, people that are 
you know, following our Twitter feeds and stuff, uh, they'll be able to chime in as well, and we'll kind of be able to have a, a discussion that helps helps each other out in that regard. But I think we can all agree that release engineering is important. Yes. <laughs> all right. We'll be back in a few. You're listening to The Ship Show. So this is uh, the part of the ship show where we uh, do a review of, of something, either a tool, a book, or a conference, or, or something else that we've uh, had a chance to, to look at and kind of talk about. And so this this uh, show we're uh, reviewing uh, configuration management best practices um, by Bob Aiello and Leslie Sachs. The subtitle is "Practical Methods That Work in the Real World." It's it's and I'll I'll post a link in the show notes. This interesting book with a uh, train on the cover. But I had a chance to read this book, and actually, uh, uh, Bob's on Twitter, uh, and I think his Twitter name is uh, just Bob Aiello, uh, and he, he and I had a, a chance to talk about it after I finished reading, but, uh, reading it, but I, I really like the book because it gives a good framework to talk about configuration management. I know that, you know, especially, you know, EJ and Yusuf, when, when we're talking about stuff, we tend to glob a lot of things together, uh, and, and the book is in a couple different sections. The first section he really talks about configuration management in general and and what's interesting is that he he breaks it down into six topic areas um and and the, he he those areas are uh source code management build engineering environment configuration change control release management and deployment and what's interesting to me is that you know oftentimes we'll talk about deployment and release management as as if they're the sort of same thing uh and and he's really good about actually separating those out because it in different environments, you know, we may be responsible for both of those, but sometimes, you know, product management is actually does the release management. I've had a a, um, a gig where that was the case, um, and so it, it gives a good framework just to talk about a lot of things that we all kind of live and talk about all the time and tend to kind of glob together. And sometimes it's that's actually not useful. The second uh, half of the book talks about the people side of CM, which I thought was really interesting. And the major, the couple major chapters there are, are right-sizing your process and overcoming resistance to change. Um, this is actually where Leslie Sachs, who's a um, psychologist, has a chapter talking about personality and how to uh, interact in a configuration management context uh, with different people. I actually thought that part was, was really interesting. I, I haven't had a chance to read the entire book, but um, I kind of skimmed through the, the parts that I felt no, I wanted to, to read first, and the, the portion that uh, Dr. Sachs uh, talks about, you know, with regards to the psychology of police engineers and police management is really interesting. I think one of the things she said that a really important uh, personality, I guess, type that police engineers have to have is they really need to be extroverted, which I found interesting because most engineers, you know, in this uh, industry segment aren't exactly uh, extroverted. So. I, I thought it was a very interesting twist on just um, the, the psychology of release management, release engineering uh, as a whole. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I know, EJ, you, you and I have talked about difficult personalities and, and difficult situations that, that we've dealt with in the past. 
and, and it's interesting to see somebody actually tackle this from from um not a that guy's being a jerk perspective, but uh you know a, a psychological sort of more formal. That guy has things he's worried about, and if you can try to figure that out more, you'll be more successful. It it, it is an interesting perspective. Um, I I think it's a great read. For for me, there were a lot of things that I actually have had experience with. So a lot of the details were interesting. You know, a lot of the concepts weren't new. So I think for release engineers, you're going to see a lot of uh, things that you already know. But what's interesting is that um, Bob Aiello has actually done a lot of work in the financial services industries. Uh, He lives in New York. So that's a lot of banking and that kind of stuff. Uh, And that's not an area that I have a lot of experience with. I know, EJ, you have more on kind of the enterprisey Java side of things. Um, and that's somewhat of where he's coming from, from what I, uh, I had read. So it's interesting because there's, there's different perspectives in there, uh, in the book. Uh, and then of course, I think it's a great read for, for managers who are managing a release engineering or, or a DevOps organization because it, it, uh, allows them to, to have a, uh, get the vocabulary if, if they're not used to, you know, I, I worked with a manager who had inherited the build team. So it'd be great. Uh, a good read uh, to get, you know, the vocabulary that he hears us talking about all the time, and then also be able to talk with other um, people uh, that are, you know, about release stuff uh, and use kind of a concrete language for that. It's it's really good for that kind of stuff as well. So, so yeah, I, I'd highly recommend it. Um, and uh, the book is Configuration Management Best Practices by Bob Ilo and Leslie Sachs. All right, folks. Well, uh, that'll be our show, uh, episode one of the Ship Show. I hope you found uh, the discussion interesting. Um, we're working on other, you know, discussions that we'll be having. We're working on bits that we'll be doing uh, that will hopefully uh, you'll find interesting and enlightening about release engineering and, and make uh, something that you uh, want to look more at. So anyway, uh, you can follow. Uh, you can email us uh, crew at theshipshow.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Ship Show Podcast. Uh, if you have any questions or suggestions, uh, go ahead and shoot us uh, emails or tweets there. Uh, we'll all uh, read them and, and probably respond to them on the next show. And so from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From north of Boston, this is EJ Sermel signing off. We'll see you back here in a couple of weeks.